1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise: Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our third conversation with Reginald Lee. Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. Thrilled to be here in Cleveland. Go, go, go Cleveland! Yes, right. we're we here at the what well, we did the Nine Center? Actually, yeah. it's the XI Center. Uh, here, here in Cleveland, and we're we're having a a, a great time doing some sessions here. At Absolutely, this just just happenstance that we all came together for this, and we figured when we have a mind like Reginald Lee around, we're going to take advantage of it. And since you were smart enough to add him to the various Age roster, we don't have to pay him. It's great. It's
2: I
3: know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we roped him in. in. Did, did, I love it. Do you <laughs> see how this works now, Reginald? Mm-hmm. This is okay.
1: And Reginald, as I is as what I like to call a recidivist guest, this is your th- <laughs> <laughs> you keep coming back. Right.
3: I feel like Alec Baldwin. You know? that's
1: right. That's right. And we're 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 so happy to have you here. But uh, let, let's first t- go around the room and talk about what we are doing here at the Ohio Society meeting. Uh, you guys have done more than one of these. I'm just doing this particular one here in Cleveland, but you guys are doing sessions at multiple of these. And mm-hmm. Reginald, what are you what have you been talking about?
3: It's really been a fun time uh, talking a little bit about strategic cost transformation. Basically, what we've been talking about on, over the last couple shows. And so what I'm finding as I go to different shows, I'm getting a larger and larger audience of people who are interested in these concepts. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, I think what was a lot more fun about this one was last time there was a cost accounting or managerial accounting guy who spoke after me. We've been going back and forth at each other for you know, a couple of decades now, and he introduced himself. but And he sat through my session, and I had no idea he was there, right? So I'm thinking, okay, so he's going to be behind me this time, and he wasn't. One of his counterparts was behind me, so I figured, okay, minion. let me. Uh,
1: Is minion? Is he, was he a minion?
3: Uh, yeah, minion minionist, <laughs> maybe, but he's he's a really nice guy, no, you know. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. he's a really nice guy. Um, and so I figured, though, I'd take the uh, time to bash accounting a little bit harder, and so I pulled out a few slides that uh, I actually felt so bad that I bashed it so hard. I said, hey, you know, Doug, I'm sorry. But this is a part of the show, you know. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I got a really good reception, which is pretty cool. Getting
1: them thinking. Getting getting them them thinking. thinking.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of heads nodding, a lot of conversation afterwards. So I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what we shoot for, Ron and I, from a leading indicator perspective. Are are conversations happening even without you after the session? Right.
2: Right. That's a good point.
1: If they're talking with each other. We like to think it's about us. So, you know, maybe it's not, but that's... that's
2: <laughs> and, and using your vocabulary. Yes. Yes, right. Your Absolutely. words and your phraseology
3: and all right. that. Yep. Well, what I found out uh, from the uh, show in Cincinnati was a former colleague of mine sat sat through a couple of sessions and he was telling me, yeah, you know, you got mind share. You've got a part of his mind that uh, he's not paying for, which is pretty cool because he kept referring to my stuff. So I thought that was, that was pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah. So, Reginald, this is
2: unfair, but you wrote this book, Strategic Cost Transformation, which is the title of the profession Mm -hmm. or the title of your book. I'm sorry. Can you give us a quick summary of what your session was about? I mean, what were the main points?
3: Yeah. So the first idea is this. Um, The objective is to make money. We all have worked with firms where folks are saying, you know, I'm profitable, but I don't have any money. I can't make payroll or whatever, right? So we start with that premise and we jump directly into gold rat and say the the objective or the goal should be to make money. I know a goal is an objective from your session. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, And so we we focus on making money and then when I say, you know, I walk them through how accounting doesn't allow them to see and make money. And so what I do then is I introduce them to this notion of strategic cost transformation where we're transforming how we think about cost in organization. And so we, you know, I introduced the idea of cash and non-cash costs, for example. And then I walked them through how accountings focus focused on cash costs, I mean non-cash costs. And that kind of, you know, you could see their heads nodding. And then I started explaining business issues that lead to um, poor cash management. You know, for example, uh, doing things from an efficiency perspective and how efficiency doesn't drive cash down. Um, in, in fact, there are certain situations where you can actually increase your uh, your cash out as a result of being more efficient, for instance, paying more taxes with, with higher margins and such. Um, and then I lay out a framework, and I basically say with this framework, listen, we see things better when we have multiple dimensions. If I live in a two-dimensional world, I can't see things that, that exist in third dimension, right? So the same thing happens if I'm living in an accounting world in a business, Things are happening that I can't see, that I can't understand. I can only see how they intersect intersect in my world. So what if we create a second a second dimension, and with that second dimension, we can now see all this stuff. We've got the context for this stuff. And that second dimension is basically how we operate the company, how we make decisions, what it is that we buy, what it is that we sell, when we collect and when we pay. Those are the kind of things that we don't necessarily see from accounting. We just see that they happen, not the why. So by creating this framework, I can both see I can see both how I make these decisions, the impact of the decisions. T- Decisions on cash you know do i hire more people do i not hire more people you know these kind of decisions and then we can translate that into what's going to happen in the uh from the accounting perspective so we can actually see both of these things without just seeing one side of it you know within accounting you know i guess from a baseball perspective perspective and then i know you're a baseball fan accounting is almost like a catcher where you don't see the pitcher right so the ball ends up in his mitt and it's like well what happened the curveball fastball cutter don't know what happened. So what I'm trying to do is bring the whole battery in. So now we've got the pitcher and the catcher together and we can see both of uh, both uh, how they work together and then you know see the effectiveness of, of how they pitch to one another and how they communicate with one another. That's really trying what I'm trying to create with this. And so,
1: yeah. And, and I think I asked you this, this last time, but I think it bears repeating. What is the difference between your tuc- cash versus non-cash cost and cash basis versus accrual accounting? I think there's a distinction there,
3: right? Yeah. So my stuff is not accounting at all. And so My thought is when it comes to cash, cash is a function of what we receive and what we spend. That's it. So we receive things based on what it is that we sold primarily. So we sell something and the people pay us. And so that's when the cash comes in. Cash goes out primarily because we're paying for something generally that we bought, except for taxes, right? But in other cases, we're obligated to pay something because we bought it. And so my focus is on helping people understand the decisions and the business environment that affects cash in and cash out. From an accounting perspective, and, and, and another factor with this is this, there's a time element, a time element that's very important. For example, um, and I may have mentioned this before, if I wake up in the morning and I got $20, I give $15 to the kids, I now have 5 I go teach at the university. They don't pay me anything, so I end up with $10 at the end of the day, or they pay me $10, and I end up with $15 at the end of the day, right? So in that day, I can see all the cash transactions, and I know at the end of the day how much money I'm going to have. I can even project the next day, right? If I start with $10 today and I'm going to make $10, I know that I'm going to have that ten uh, that $20. Now the function is how much am I going to spend giving money to the kids, right? But with accounting, it doesn't work that way, right, especially when I'm calculating my margins. For example, we start thinking about revenue recognition, You know, I can sell you something today, Ed, and say, hey, you know what? I know you're tied on cash. Drive a Honda. You mentioned that. Why don't you just pay me next month, right? And then that could be something that I paid for, let's say, two months ago, and it's been sitting on my shelf waiting for me to sell it. I can calculate the profit today based on money I won't receive until next month and tied to money I spent two months ago. And it goes kind of it violates that whole notion of it's got to happen within a period. I can see cash in and cash out. And so what I what I try to do is help people understand there's a purpose for the accruals that you mentioned. And that's for reporting. But I think what my beef with the managerial accounting folks is that they believe managerial accounting is for the reporting and the cost accounting is. I mean uh, managerial accounting is for decision making, and cost accounting is actually for reporting. I'm saying no managerial accounting isn't really any good for business. It doesn't need to be there. Replace it with understanding what's going on in your business, what we buy, how we consume it, what we create, what we pay for it, when we choose to pay for it, how we negotiate what we're paying for. All those things are going to affect what ends up being thrown into accounting for them to report. So let's focus on those kind of things. They lead what's going to happen in the back end from um, uh, from accounting perspective. Yep. <clears throat> and,
1: Brian, what, do you, what have you been talking about here?
2: <clears throat> I did value pricing, implementing you know value pricing, and uh, warned everybody that, what I'm about to tell you is about to be blown up <laughs> with the subscription <laughs> business model. But we got into offering options, and I showed them some examples, and we talked through change requests, asked them a lot of questions. What's really interesting about it is you can, you can start with theory and then show in practice, or you can show them practice and then back up to the theory. And I did the latter this morning, and that was quite effective actually.
1: Yeah, you said you threw up options first, right? And then said, What what do you got about this? What questions do do you have? What do you think about
2: this? What would happen if you did this with your customers? And that generated, and some people in the room were already doing it, Mm -hmm. they've experimented with it, and it generated a great discussion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the one of the complaints I hear about the options lately is, well, we don't want to be a car wash. First of all, I'm like, well, why not? I mean, right? Yeah. What's wrong? What's wrong with getting your car washed? <laughs>
2: well,
1: why not? But we don't want to be perceived as just you know being all about this gold, silver, bronze, and I said right. it's not it's not about that. It's about really crafting choices that are important to the customer. Right. 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 And that they, that's something that they may select from or not, and that's okay. You know, we want we want to be constantly giving them choice, and that feeds into My session today, right, which is my consulting theory and practice stuff that we've talked about on the show, where I say, look, my role as a consultant, and I I, I use this as my intent statement when I do an engagement, my intention is to help you make the best possible decision.
3: That's
1: my intention. And I'm going to ask you lots of questions, and it's mostly because I'm trying to help you make the best possible decision. Sure. And you've got to give me the information about this decision so that I can help you do that. I'm I'm good at asking questions, and I'm perhaps good at aggregating all of the different possibilities and then giving you the choices. But you've got to give me the information. You know your business well much more than mine, right. than I do. So what I have to do is is help you make that best possible decision. And what I find is operating from that standpoint as a consultant is wholly different from how most consulting operations are which is we're coming in to give you the answers and we will tell you what to do right and as peter block said and we mentioned this on the show it's very it's very colonial actually right this is this is what you will very german <laughs> this is what you will learn <laughs> we will have training <laughs> and you will enjoy it i love it <laughs> So, but this has been a, so. I'm only doing this one. You guys are doing have done this at two other cities. Two other show: Dayton
2: and Cincinnati. Cincinnati, and then we'll be in Columbus next week.
1: Okay, cool. And have, what have you noticed differently about the audiences? Have they, have they been a little bit different? I mean, it's all Ohio.
2: But uh, this one's bigger. I think this is the biggest show out of all of them so far. And the uh, level of questions I get are about the same, though.
3: Yeah, so, so similar groups. Yep. All right. I would say so. What about you? So from our perspective, it's really kind of interesting because you see the, the different personalities in Ohio. So Dayton's somewhat of a renegade group, and so there's my session was a little bit more lively. Uh, Cincinnati's always more reserved in every element of being Cincinnati. Uh, so a lot of the folks uh, they'll sit back and they'll listen. They'll give you good uh, good grades or good evaluations, but they don't say anything. So you never know where you really sit. Like a British audience. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> That, I, I, I can't think of Cincinnati like that, but the, the audience, yeah. Cincinnati's got its own personality that's mm-hmm. kind of weird, but well, not weird because I'm from Cincinnati. I don't want people bombing my house or anything, but, um, you know, really good people down there. But Cleveland has a lot of energy, and I think Columbus has a lot of energy as mm-hmm. well, uh, just based on the stuff that I talk about. I think most of my interaction last year was in Columbus, but I had uh, some good interaction here uh, today as well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good crowd They were all engaged with, with me This is the one, one and only one I, I one not tells tell us tell It's cool But more engaged Than the folks in Virginia Yesterday that I had They just, just weren't Seemed to be as, as These these guys were mo- much more into it Same, Same talk? So. No, slightly different But okay. still uh, it, it, Just just you could tell That there were mostly people At the previous one Were like I'm here for the CPE Thank you very oh, much Oh, yeah I yeah. uh, think that's just the nature Of how the, the, the conference Evolved over time But nothing bad There were some really good people there, don't sure. get me wrong. But,
2: so. so, Ed, you talked about this consultant, you gave the definition that Block gave, and then you talk about surrogate managers and i would love for you to explain the difference between those two functions or roles
1: yep i think that'd be great but let's do it after our break i want to remind you that you can get a hold of ron or me by sending an email to ask tsoe at varisage.com. of course the website is the soul of enterprise where you can get show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows but right now a word from our sponsor
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too.
0: We're tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag #AskTSOE. now back to the soul of enterprise
2: all right well welcome back everybody we're here live from cleveland accounting conference for the ohio society of cpas i'm here with Reginald Smith, who's been on the show twice before. Reginald
1: Smith, what the hell are you uh, Sorry, about Reginald Lee.
2: Reginald Lee, thank you, Reggie, sorry. Reggie Smith. Wow, yeah. I've upgraded <laughs> you. Sorry, Reginald Lee, wow, and I wrote the forward to your book, you think I'd know your name, uh, and Ed Kless, of course, and we've all done a session today, and Ed, I, we sat through your session, and you were talking about from compliance to consulting, and you gave the definition of a consultant that Peter Block uses. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about surrogate manager. And I don't think you've ever explained that distinction on the show, so I wanted you to explain that distinction between a consultant and a surrogate manager. Sure.
1: And just a, a quick aside, uh, he's mis—he's uh, introduced me incorrectly before. I too, have. So. I <laughs> I
2: have. Go, no, I, I'm really, a part of the group, right? I have mispronounced "class," if you can believe it.
1: <laughs> Bless with a K. That's <laughs> Anyway, but thanks, Ron. Yeah, this is this is one of the, those things that when I first learned this in working with with Peter Block, just is. is mind expanding once you finally get the, the gist of it. And in fact, one of the things that I said is in setup to this is I oftentimes have people come up to me after the session and say, You gave me words for things that I always knew. I love that. Right. I, I think that is profound. Yeah. And, and, it, and that's exactly what Peter Block did for me in this distinction between consultant and surrogate manager, which I hate the term surrogate manager, by the way. It just sounds weird. But consultant is someone who has some influence over an individual, group, or organization, but has no direct authority to make decisions. And the key notion is that understanding that they do not make decisions and that they keep themselves an arm's length from the decisions. And it's really to make sure that you have in balance the authority and responsibility. What I struggled with for years in my implementation career is when I was given all of the responsibility and little to no authority. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have the authority to actually change stuff, but they expected stuff change to happen. So when I encountered Block and I understood, oh, I'm supposed to actually remain distant from the decision because it's their company, it's their project, it's their, their organization. I am not a part of that. That I have to just make get, help them make the best decision. And then Block does make a distinction. He says there's a, there is another role, and it's I don't know if it's in the purvey of consulting, though, is surrogate manager. And that's where you are given the authority to make decisions. You're given that authority. You're, you're making decisions on behalf of or in place of somebody who should be at, at the organization, the firm. And once, once that light bulb goes off, you realize that, okay, th- there's, there's nothing wrong about either of those roles. They're just different, and they are mutually exclusive. You mm-hmm. cannot be a consultant and a surrogate manager for the same customer at the same time. You can, and often this does happen, start out as a consultant and get sucked into what I call the vortex of surrogate manager mm-hmm. land, where they want you to make decisions. But now that, you, now that people understand that, they're like, oh, I have a framework for pushing back. And you can even say, well, if you want me to make decisions, I will, but that also means I'm going to get corresponding authority and responsibility, right? So you keep those things in balance. And that's really what the, the key learning is. And uh, you know, I think it's very helpful. And here's the thing, and I didn't talk about this at the, at the session today, is that this happens on both a micro and a macro level. So let me give you an example from, from my uh, background. If I'm setting up somebody's accounting system and there's a a setup window for accounts receivable and I just say, you know what, they just want the standard aging buckets, 30, 60, 90, and that's what I enter into the system because that's the standard one, I've made a decision. I've made a tiny little micro decision on their behalf Mm -hmm. and that at some point in the future, they might say, well, we don't even look at it that way. We look at it weekly, Right. right, and that might cause a problem. At some point in the end so and here's the thing is if what happens how you get sucked into the vortex of of surrogate manager land is making those tiny decisions and then all of a sudden those things add up and the next thing you know they're saying well why why aren't our collections doing better because you put this receivable system in what authority do i have over your collections (laughs) right well you made all these other decisions previously why isn't this happening So uh, I am adamant in my engagements with when I come to a point where I see this is a decision, I will throw it back and say, I I know this sounds small, and I will explain to you what the ramifications of your decision are, but it's still yours, and you need to make
2: it. So So you don't even go near the line of surrogate manager. When you get in close, (laughs) you kind of back off.
1: I make every attempt not to go near the line. Now, do I cross it? Yeah, of course, and it's a mistake every single time I do it, and I still do it. But I, my awareness of it has helped me fine-tune it so that I can avoid it more more often than not. I think what was happening before I had the words for it is that I was sucked into it, and I didn't really know why. But now that I know why, I can, I can attempt to avoid it better, and often do. I, 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 I'm not saying that I... But I I don't always do it. I'm not perfect, so I get sucked into it, right? right. It's, a, it's a vortex. But, yes, and, I, and, I, and I even, even on small things, on small things, I, I really have to concentrate hard. This is why I think if, if you're a great consultant, you leave every engagement almost exhausted all the time, right? Because there's so many things of the, like that nature coming up that you're trying to make, so –
2: well, what I found interesting, too, sitting in the back, listening to you talk about that distinction, you know, CPAs are supposed to be independent, objective, look at things with a jaundiced eye. They kind of already have this idea that they're not supposed to make decisions. So I think that really resonates. But what you do is clarify it and give them a vocabulary to understand it.
1: Yeah. And and here's the weird part. They do make decisions. They just don't even realize it. Well, like you said, they can they make, make those minor ones. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep yeah, so that's one of that's one of the most important things that I learned from Block is that you know that these these important minor shifts can have large ramifications further down the road. So
2: so what in your opinion is the major reason, because you even said this at the beginning of the session, Cpa profession's been talking about this change, compliance to reliance, compliance to I don't care what you call it for thirty years now. And what do you think is preventing them from making this? transformation.
1: I think the other it's the other one of the other things that I talked about and that is they are in love with the technical side of what they do and they, the realization that there's the people side that is equally important and the balance between be caring not only about the numbers and getting the numbers right but the emotional well-being of the people with whom they're working that's required for consulting and don't accountants don't take this the wrong way, but accountant and caring about the emotional well-being of, the, of their clients not usually high on the list. It's just not right. Up, oh, you owe a lot of tax this year. Ooh, that sucks. Ooh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> too bad for you. Too bad for right? you. That's what's not too bad. Next year, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Next year, let's try to do this. But so, so I, I just think that that the, the, the accountants traditionally have not not that all. There's some that are great at it. Don't get me wrong, right? Sure. But there are there are, there are far many, many accountants who are just so in love with the technical aspect of what they do that they've just honed their technical skills and really haven't elevated their people skills. So I think that's what's – I think that's what's holding – I could be wrong.
2: But my my wrong. theory, and, and, and it doesn't contradict yours. I just think it's adds to it, is that we are better with providing answers than answering questions mm-hmm. or asking questions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Th- we, th- those are in alignment for sure.
2: Yeah. We don't like to – because if we ask a question, we feel stupid. We're supposed to have the answers. We're the pros. Mm-hmm. And consultants are paid for the questions, not the answers. And I'm going to turn this over to you, to you
1: Reginald, because I th- this just struck my mind as we were talking about You You teach at, at Xavier, mm-hmm. right? And as a professor, have you adopted any of, like, the, the Socratic method? Because what we're talking about here is really Socratic method, right? Are you, Are you able to extract from your students the knowledge that they have rather than, here's what I'm stuffing into you, you know? <laughs> You know, and i I think that that's that that's kind of a great skill to have as a
3: as a professor it really is um I think each school has its own personalities. I think certain schools are better at that than others mm-hmm. um, at Xavier, I think depending I teach operations, and it's a core course, meaning everyone's got to take it, and so sometimes it's hard to draw information out because with operations, they don't always have a lot of context. With it being a core course, they don't have a lot of interest. I have to be here. <laughs> I have to be here. And I'm, my parents told me I have to graduate. And they're not going to pay for another <laughs> semester. So, therefore, uh, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult <laughs> to get some of those things out. However, uh, when I was an engineering professor, for instance, and you've got people who are there and interested in the topic then it's a lot easier to get folks to start talking about things because they've got a background, they've got context for what we're talking about. And if you pose the right questions, then that draws a lot of interest from the students. So it's a lot easier in that environment. Um, now, one of the things I'm finding, though, is that with my MBAs, and I'm teaching them some of the uh, strategic cost transformation stuff, that's been quite interesting. And I have one student who's just fascinated by it. He works in a uh, finance organization for his company. He's an FP&A guy. And he said that one class in learning strategic cost transformation will pay for his entire MBA in terms of its value. Now, when you've got people who are that interested in it, and that's what you know, they're doing work that ties to operations. It's easier to bring ideas out of out of out of that group.
1: It's interesting. Right. The, the, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. His last name was Myers. His, you've seen the video, run. Is he's a high school math teacher? Oh, right and and uh, I'll I'll try to send you the video we'll put a link to it in yeah, the show notes be cool. here because it's really and he, he he his line is I he's a high school math teacher. I sell a product to a to a consumer base who doesn't want it but is required by law to consume it.
3: Interesting.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he just has this whole thing about but and if I taught math the way that it's according to the textbook, all I'm teaching them really is how to decode a textbook. Yeah. And you can pass. He, he actually demonstrates how you could pass the entire unit of. In this case, if it was a physics textbook that he was showing, not knowing the math at all, just knowing how to decode a textbook. Right. So he tries to go the, the complete opposite, and I think you'd find it fascinating because oh, one what? of the other things that he talks about is is the whole me- the, the measurement thing. Is is like, really adamant about that that aspect of it even though he's a math teacher right so really really cool stuff so I'll we'll, I have to watch that video again too <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while it's, since I've seen since, that yeah I actually use it around strategy when we're talking about strategy because it, what people want in strategy Reginald right is they, what's the formula and strategy doesn't work that way not at all
2: <laughs> not at all it's a creative act not a yeah, mathematical it's a, it's act it's a creative mm-hmm. act
1: exactly exactly
2: uh, Reginald I have a, a thought for you oh sure. uh I, I want I wanted to ask you after Cincinnati last time I went to Indian uh, University of Indianapolis mm-hmm. and I gave a talk I presented some of your material just in you know broad broad overview sure and I had a couple students come up to me afterwards actually several students come up to me and I want to share with you after this break their reaction but folks we'd like to remind you in the meantime if you want to get a hold of Better send us an email to asktsoe at verisage dot com and now we want to hear from our sponsors.
0: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts
1: and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here live from the Ohio uh, Conference, the Ohio Society of CPAs in Cleveland. I'm here with Ed Kless and Reginald Lee, not Smith. And, Reginald, uh, before we went to break, I was telling you that at the Cincinnati show, which was about last month, actually, in mm-hmm. September, I then did some follow-up speaking at the University of Indianapolis, and I presented some of your material, just broad overview about some of the issues with cost accounting, as you describe it, cash, -cash. non-cash, had several students come up to me afterwards and say, oh, geez, we're accounting majors, we were sitting in cost accounting, we knew it was wrong, and we had no idea why, and you just clarified it. And I was just curious, do you have that same reaction among some of your students who might also be taking accounting
3: courses? You know, it's interesting, not only the students, but the professors. Wow. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite guys, uh, Joe Castellano, I may have mentioned Joe before Mm -hmm. to you, uh, is Professor Emeritus at the University of Dayton. And he's been around for a long time, taught taught cost uh, cost accounting. And he said the same thing. He said, you know, we knew something was wrong. We couldn't put our fingers on it. And it's like Ed mentioned earlier on with this session that I'm kind of giving them the words to be able to explain some of what's wrong. With my students, I don't always get that part of it. I think my students are trying to resolve it because now they're currently students within the same program. And so they're being taught things that contradict what it is that they're learning in some of the other classes. But I had a student the other day come up to me. He came up to me and he said, you know, that stuff was absolutely fascinating. I love that part of operations, even though I'm an accounting major. And so the 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 thought that we are – you know, we knew something was wrong. I don't get a lot of that from my students at Xavier, for example. But like I mentioned, folks like Joe have said that before and other colleagues at Xavier. You know, this is really unique stuff. And so it's 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 wonderful to hear. And I just hope that it's something that will allow them to have more tools in their tool bags once they get out there and start practicing. Because I know we've had conversations about what we're actually teaching folks in the classroom. And I was teaching uh, this the, one of my MBA courses, right? And during a break, I found this paper that one of the other professors was presenting, or I guess offered to the students, and it was talking about buying a machine. And, you know, I'm an operations guy. How do I make operations better? How do I generate cash as a result of it? I looked at the information that the students were provided. This is the cost of the machine, depreciation, salvage value, all that kind of stuff, and not a single word about how are we going to use this? Why do we need it? <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I go, my MBAs come back, and I say, see, this is what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I think that we continue to teach some of the wrong things. I'm I'm just glad to hear that those students were inquisitive enough and interesting and insightful enough to be able to come to you and say that. Uh, Because I think we need more students who are thinking along those lines of maybe all this stuff isn't necessarily true. Maybe there's a different way that we can look at things that can be better not only for us, but the places we're going to work and our clients or, excuse me, customers when I'm working for them. I learned. I learned. No,
1: no, customer versus client. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and Reginald, I want to want to tell you that you have changed the way I present some stuff. Specific, oh, really? yep, specifically around the value conversation. And Ron, I think you and I have talked about this. So we uh, have been using a, a method by Mahan Khalsa called. He calls it the five golden questions. So once you identify th- something that's a problem, what you're listening for. In, is a measurable word. You're listening for them to say something like, well, this will help us improve our efficiency or our productivity. Mm-hmm. So morale, like anything that you can potentially put some kind of a measurement or metric. Uh, see, I'm mm-hmm. learning a metric on. And the the first question you'd ask, well, how do you go about measuring this now? What is it now? What's the value of the difference? And then over time, and those are the five five golden questions. Mm-hmm. So, But I've added a sixth, which is cash or non-cash. Yeah. Right. Because I I, because I want them to begin to think in those terms because, yeah, we can go through this whole thing. But if you're because previously, this is what I got. And I always dismissed this until I had the language from you. Right. right? Which was, well, I'm going to pay my people anyway. Because it was it was a non-cash cost. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to pay my people. So what? You're going to save Betty Sue four hours.
3: I don't care. I pay her anyway. Right. Right. Uh, I think another thing where this becomes important is. When cash and non-cash contradict one another. And so Mm -hmm. I usually go into conversations, especially with leaders, and ask them, what's more important to you, profit or money? Because if they're driving profit, and I say, okay, so we're going to make decisions that are going to improve profit, but it may put you in a cash-poorer situation. Is that okay with you? And if they answer yes, then we understand in the hierarchy of importance what we're going to focus on. If the objective is, you know, they often often say, well, well, both. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way because here are some decisions, for example, uh, you know, of a situation. For example, I was talking to uh, someone earlier about a company that wanted to increase their efficiency. And so I said, well, are you sure you want to do that? Is that going to change the revenue coming in? No, the market is what it is. Prices are the same. Okay. Are you going to fire anybody? No. So the cash in and out are going to be the same. So now what happens is if you become more efficient and you report a lower cost, my margins have gone up. And as a, report, as a result of the margins going up, I've got to pay more taxes. So I'm going to be cash poor by increasing my profit. And so if we don't understand how the interplay between the two, then I can put myself in a situation where, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm more profitable, but I don't have money, like we talked about uh, in the session. So I think it's important to make that distinct, distinction so we know if it's about cash, we're going to make these decisions. But it's going to have a negative impact sometimes on profit. As long as you're okay with that, let's move forward. And that's where the pricing thing rolls in.
1: I think the example that, that I used today was the, the FedEx. Right? Oh, yeah, that was really right? good. The, the the cost accounting thing, because there's, there is there's not a single cost accountant alive who would tell you, yep, deliver the package in the morning, drive around town <laughs> delivering other packages, and then go back right. to the same place. N- zero cost accountants will tell you to do that. Right. But if you can price it effectively, and this is, I think, where your work feeds into what we're talking exactly. about. If you can say, well, you get a premium for getting in in the morning, now we're talking because now we are talking increase to cash because – Right. More, more money from a revenue standpoint.
2: Right. And, Reginald, one other thing, and this goes back to Ed's point about giving people a vocabulary to understand it. Just like your cash, non-cash, you've created the second or, well, one of the dimensions that you talk about is the cash and operating domain. Hmm. And that everything in the accounting domain comes from the cash and operating domain. In other words, the accounting domain is subservient. You've got all the information in the cash and operating domain, don't you? You
3: do. You really do. And I, th- I don't think a lot of folks really see it that way. So when I run my business, as we mentioned before, we buy things, we consume them, we create output, and we sell things, and we collect the cash. All cash transactions happen in the operations and cash domain, and that's really what comprises the, the domain. And then we take this information, and someone asks the question, "What's it cost? What's our profit?" Well, it's not as if information is just appearing from other sources. It comes from the decisions that we made from an operating perspective, which is quite interesting to me because when I suggest to people, well, stop focusing on the accounting data for decision-making and focus on operations and cash. Well, won't I lose information? No, that's where it came from, it's, <laughs> right? That's it. <laughs> and I think when people see that, even visually, that
2: resonates.
3: I hope so. Because today, I actually put up a, a picture a, of a woman on a bicycle, and I said, this is like a bicycle. It works really well in one direction, from understanding the decisions I make in operations to reporting it from a cash perspective. But a lot of managerial accounting folks think that you can start with a profit or a or cost and move backwards the opposite direction. You can't do that. You can't disaggregate that. You can't take a bottle of ragu spaghetti sauce and reverse it and end, it up, end up with tomatoes and onions and all that. It's an irreversible process. And for some reason, folks think, oh, well, if I understand my costs, I know what happened. No, you don't. Because even when you calculate the costs, as we discussed many times, whatever it is that you're calculating the cost of, the Apple Pencil, which is an example I often give, the technique that you use gives different answers. And so if I have different costs using different techniques, how do I use those three things and come up with an answer that represents the entire organization? What we're spending, the decisions that we made, you just can't. This is just is the parsing of value problem, isn't it, Ron? The, yeah. Right. The, yeah, the, absolutely. The whole,
1: you, you, when you're at a restaurant, you can't make a distinction between the the, with the quality of the food and the clean, cleanliness of the restaurant. That's it's right. all part and parcel from from an experience perspective.
3: Mm-hmm. But I love that. I like the ragu. See, light bulbs going on over here too. <laughs> continue to, continue to. Well, another thing that came up in the in the uh, conversation is this whole idea of measuring costs, and I. You know, I know that Doug, the guy who was in there. I, in fact, I know I recall sending him an, e- and sending him an email about measuring costs versus calculating costs. And I said, so what happens if you go to the doctor and they say, you know, so we're we think we've measured your height. You're either two nine eight six <laughs> or five seven, depending on the technique that we use, right? That's not how measurements work. And I think that there is an expectation of precision. Well, you know, the accountant came in and measured my cost. No, they didn't. They figured it out. And I think that I could see, you know, talking about light bulbs, I could see light bulbs going off in folks' heads that, you know, maybe this stuff isn't what I thought it was. Some some of the people haven't necessarily looked at, well, maybe this stuff is wrong. And maybe they just held on to the notion that, you know what, I know my cost. It's important. This is my margin. This is how much money I'm making. And I'm hoping that we challenge those notions saying, you know what, your margin may be $3, but that has nothing to do with how much it's money I'm It's because you're using the measuring stick of, of money. So right. it looks, appears
1: as if you are using a measurement. Right. 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 Well, this gets back to the whole logical positivism and... Uh,
2: scientism. The scientism, Because yeah. it's got numbers,
1: it's got to be scientific. Science. Yeah, because right. a paint-by-numbered Mona Lisa is exactly like the real one.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> gotta love that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Reginald, when I explain it, another thing I said at that university was it's like LIFO or FIFO. You can manipulate profit depending on which inventory method you use or which depreciation method. They get that. Accountants get that. They know that any first-year accounting student can manipulate an income statement and make it show better profit. But like you say, do you want profit or do you want money?
3: And that brings up an interesting session uh, idea that maybe we can hit in the next session, and that is... When you start thinking about calculating these costs in the operations and cash domain, nothing changes.
2: That was a light bulb for me from your book those okay. two bo- domains and, and the vocabulary around it, and how the accounting domain is subservient to the cash and operating domain.
1: Right. Yes, and let's talk about that in our next set session, but want to remind you that you can talk to Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE. Big reminder about the Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to the show without commercial interruption and as well as bonus episodes. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer,
0: Sage. Follow us on Twitter at Voice TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm here with Ed Kless and Reginald Lee. And Reginald, I wanted to ask you, I know in addition to being a professor, you also do consulting on your st- strategic cost transformation. Uh How is that being received by company leadership when you go into a company and explain this?
3: It's really interesting. It depends on the type of company and what their problems are. And so I find it's fairly bimodal. I've got a group of companies that are leading edge. So they're looking for the next idea. And so when they're looking for the next idea, they look in the tools like the ones I'm developing to try to figure out if they can gain a competitive advantage from that. So as a result, you've got a group of people who are curious, and that curiosity doesn't always lead to action. So part of my job is to help them understand the importance of action and how it can create that competitive advantage for them, that leading, ad- uh, leading advantage. So, for instance, I had a, um, a major capital company. And for those guys, it was primarily about how can we look at our numbers differently than anyone else for our portfolio uh, clients so that we can handle them better, generate uh, greater cash, so we can generate uh, greater cash returns. So companies like that are sometimes a little bit more skeptical. It's a positive skepticism because that's just how they operate. You know, I had one company that would go to academic – they would look for uh, new ideas and academic uh, presentations for example just try, you know they know that nobody else is listening to that crap other than you know some of the other academics but their thought is hey maybe we can get something out of this so you know there's there's a healthy skepticism in those groups the other groups are those that are basically about to fail and they've gone through the accounting stuff we've lowered our costs we've done all this stuff help and so with that group you have immediate buy in we tried everything else you came recommended what do we do and so I generally have less voiced skepticism in those environments because people are worried about losing their jobs. And so in that case, it's pretty much let's get to action right away. And so really, kind of the uh, the um, surrogate manager it, that becomes an option in many cases. I've got to avoid. And that's that's it's great to learn that 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 terminology because they're not they don't know what to do. And so in those cases. It provides them with a way of looking at things like, wow, we haven't seen that before. I had a a, a COO who was a CPA, and we're sitting in his office one night, and he said, how did I miss this? And I said, well, you're looking right, and the answers are coming from the left, or the issues are coming from the left. I said, so what we need to do is make sure that you have a complete purview of what it is that you're dealing with. And I said, that's that's generally what happened. And so he's very thankful we still interacted uh, today. But I think, um, you know, many cases... It's very well received. Now, there's a group in the middle that I'm trying to go after, and those those groups in the middle are f- fairly challenging because in that case, the skepticism is, you know, we've always done it that way or we don't need to change. And so sometimes I just decide, you know what, I don't need to try to change you. You know, if you come about this in a way that, okay, you come after, you, you know, re- you reach out and say, hey, you know, I find this interesting. That's cool. But I, I find that I'm not trying to change people because it's, you know, like pushing a spaghetti noodle uphill, you know, cooked spaghetti, wet spaghetti noodle uphill. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I don't think we
2: can change people. What's that famous uh, quote, Ed? Oh,
1: um. Oh, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevancy. No, no, no,
2: uh, <laughs> Edwin Friedman. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, right, right, right. The colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated
2: to oh, change. It's yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <That's> my favorite <laughs> That's lie. And, and Reginald, just on that, you, you put your money where your mouth is. You kind of have a world-class guarantee with your consulting
3: work that if they don't make more money, they pay what it's worth. Well, actually, not even that, Um, which I like. I tell them that, if i don't make them money then they can I'll return their fees right and so it's interesting that actually started this whole process believe it or not so that was a value proposition i offered back in the 80s and i realized okay if i've got to make them more money i've got to make sure i've got the tools to be able to see what's causing them to not make money and i need to be able to recommend things so i realized those tools were not effective and so i had to design new tools to help me understand what's going on within the organization. How are you spending money? Why are you making these decisions? What is, what's the impact of the decisions? And being able to s- explain it to them very clearly so that they can look at it and say, ah, now I see it. That was actually the genesis of it. So it almost started with a value proposition. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, as Ron, it
1: is like the, the he made the transformation of looking at profit. Holistically, like we talked about, right? And right. Not, on, not only the customer's profit, but your profit as well. You've got to, you've got to look at it at outside as a whole. Because yep. right. Right? if your customers go out of business, there's no business for Reginald. Right.
3: Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: Right. And, and Reginald, one more thing. I, when, sure. I, when I talk about your stuff and present it, especially to a room full of accountants, I say, look, don't get upset about cost accounting being destroyed here. I said, we didn't invent it. Engineers invented it. It's only appropriate that an engineer is leading us out of it.
3: Well, let's hope so because there's. I think, you know, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. We had six GM divisions. We had Mead World Headquarters. We had NCR World Headquarters. We had more engineers per capita than any other major city in the United States. Now it's all gone. And when I see the decisions that are made, and a lot of it tied to cost accounting, you know, we are talking about make versus buy today, and I said – You're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing a non-cash cost with make to a cash cost with buy and saying, it's cheaper. Let's get rid of all these people. Let's cut down this community. Let's just eliminate all these jobs. And so I'm hoping that we can get to the point where we start understanding this stuff and make better decisions as leaders.
2: So you don't blame just, say, foreign trade or foreign competition. You blame some of this cost accounting perspective as well.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you start thinking about this stuff, what, what goes into the model? What's the, what's the scope of the model that you're looking at? What are the decisions that you're making? Because if you're looking at this and saying, well, it's cheaper in China, what's the scope of that? Because when you start thinking about having to go over there, build plants, move leadership, establish a new infrastructure, establish new relationships, find new suppliers, and then move back, you're telling me that it was cheaper to do all that stuff from a cash perspective than to just stay here?
2: <laughs> I find that hard to believe. You know, the, that, that's so like it's cheaper to make a million cars than a hundred thousand because of the economies of scale and how the metrics work, right? But right. How can that be true? You're buying a million
3: engines, not a hundred thousand. Well, it's funny you ask that because I've been asking that same question for twenty years, and that question is: if it's cheaper to make a million than a hundred thousand, give me one example where I'm spending less money making a million than when I make a hundred thousand. Just one one and i've spoken to ceos around the world and asked them that question and i've not gotten a single response to it oh but the cost goes lower. all these oh buts you know oh but the cost per unit goes down. oh but but, but we, we can only 20? sell 50,000 exactly uh, uh, yeah. exactly <laughs> so I, I you know i just that 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 concerns me when i when i see these communities like mine growing up being destroyed i look at the decisions that managers are making it cost us this they can do it for x Or, you know, trying to figure out our costs and what goes into our costs. And you know what? Tom Johnson does a a great job when he talks in uh, Profit Beyond Measure about the the results and the means. I teach this in my class that if we focus on the means, the results are going to be there. But he talks and does does a great job at saying, you know, but if we start with the results, look at the infrastructure that we create. And that's what GM did. We had this huge infrastructure driven towards make as much um, as much product as we can, if we, you know, inventory be damned, and doing all these things that leads to just really highly ineffective and unproductive ways of doing business. And you come to a point where you have to say, this isn't sustainable. So what happens? We cut jobs, we cut plants, we cut product lines, we cut names. No, no Pontiac anymore. No Oldsmobile anymore. Somewhere you got to get to the point where it's this, 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 these decisions are causing this to happen.
2: What I find fascinating about this is even if you're only partially correct about the diagnosis of this, it's an incredible damnation of accounting education and just college education, business education.
3: We need to fix this.
1: We do and need it. to fix it. Great stuff. Yeah. All right. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We are going to do Rory Sutherland, Ed. Uh, at long been, last, at we've long been threatening last. this. The interview is already in the can, so you know. It's not like he's not going to show for the third time. It's going to be okay. Right. But we will finally release it to you, our, our audience at the Soul of Enterprise. We're really looking forward to that. It's a great conversation. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to edit it down from an hour and 40 minutes to an hour. So if you re- want the whole thing, you've got to become a Patreon, Patreon
2: sponsor. Yep. All right. All right, Ed, I'll see you in 167 hours.
1: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.